0: While we're standing, why don't we go ahead and read. It's in 1 Peter 4. And this time we can read from the bulletin if you have the bulletin. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the uh, former uh, history that necessitated Peter writing this uh, and that these people, no doubt, were comforted by his words. And we pray, Lord, that you would comfort us by the power of your Holy Spirit in our time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your blessings. And we give all praise and glory to you in Christ's name for all that you are doing. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want to, before I go into this text, I want to take you back to 1 Peter chapter 1, just the first few verses here, and read to whom Peter is writing this letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so he's writing to people who now would be in modern-day Turkey. And it's pretty much the northern half of modern-day Turkey and pretty much the uh, western two-thirds, perhaps. And yet, uh, he's writing specifically to these folks, and he's writing to them, calling them Pilgrims of the Dispersion. Down in verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. So he's speaking to people who have recently been grieved by various trials and when you hear how he addressed them, that they are pilgrims of the dispersion, it would seem to me likely that he's writing to people that have fled. They've fled to these areas in part because persecution has begun and now they are in a new place. So now he's writing to to them where they've moved to. and intense persecution has begun. This is written in like the mid-60s. And so we know from what Pastor Kaiser has shared recently in his introduction to Revelation that there were several persecutions beginning during this period. The Christians were largely protected under the umbrella of Judaism for quite a long time. The, Roman, the Romans didn't know how to differentiate them. They just viewed Christianity as a sect of Judaism and didn't really care to try and differentiate between them. But as time went on, it became more and more obvious that the Christians did not get along with the Jews and vice versa. And so the Romans then began to distinguish between them and thus they could choose to persecute the one and not the other or again, vice versa. Now, I want to point you to something in what we just read in our reading for today and it's right at the start. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. So in verse 6 of chapter 1, he said that you have been afflicted, and now he says that you will be afflicted. So he's speaking to people who have begun to suffer persecution, and then he tells them in uh, 4.12, you will undergo a fiery trial. Now, why Peter knows this, how he knows this, we're not sure. But he does speak, obviously, with authority. So he seems to know what's coming for these folks, and he wants them to be prepared. The uh, fact, oh, and I, I want to get a couple books. Uh, Micah, can you bring those two books up for me? I forgot to bring them. and Because I want to quote Ron right now. Uh, the facts that, thank you, buddy. he's dealing with people I think that were unaccustomed to persecution and so I don't know that he's primarily dealing with the Jews when you uh, hear of Paul and Peter you often hear them described as the Apostle to the Jews and the Apostle to the Gentile Um, that's just a broad term used to describe them because even when you read how Paul goes to he always goes to the synagogue Paul always goes to the synagogue and yet uh, Peter also is going to both. He's going to both Jews and Gentiles. But he is dealing with people who have been dispersed and so now you're dealing with a mixed bag and yet they have fled. They're part of this dispersion. And I want to read the first chapter of this commentary by Edmund Clowney on this this chapter. Should Christians be surprised when painful trials come? Peter speaks tenderly for he can understand the question. Has he not assured them of the victory of Christ over all the powers of darkness and death? Has he not called them the holy people of God, living stones in God's own temple, heirs of heaven? Yet, the more firmly Peter grounds their hope and the more eloquently he states their privilege, the more strange it must seem that they should have to suffer. Given the resurrection victory of Christ, why should those who bear his name be abused, mocked, and arrested as criminals. And I believe that's a good question. Why if here we are 2,000 years later Christ has won the victory, must we continue to suffer the abuse of unbelievers on this earth? So that's a good question for us and it's a question that he put to these people long 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 ago right after Christ's victory. And some would have you believe That the Apostles were kind of pulling a trick on people writing to them saying oh, it's you're almost there It's almost over. Jesus is coming right around the corner, and that's not true. It's obviously not true Why would they lie like that? And so there are some puzzles to figure out when you read the Bible especially in terms of timing now if we let's say, a group of believers in this country that, that uh, would receive this as a new letter now from Peter, and they receive this letter, it would be perhaps a little surprising to them. And yet, if this letter were to receive be received by Christians in China, in Syria, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Sudan, Egypt, they would not be surprised by this. They've been living this, and they've been living this now for and some of them generations, and so they understand suffering in a way that we in America just do not understand suffering. And so I think it's important that we begin to discuss what it is that may happen in this nation. It still might be a long way away, we pray it is, but yet we know that something is changing. I want to read you verse 13. I'll start again with 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So now, uh, can Peter be serious that we are to rejoice in suffering, in persecution? And so you know that he is. You know that he's serious. You know that he's not making this stuff up. But can you rejoice if persecution were to affect you today or next week or next month? If we were to be hunted as the Christians of Syria are now being hunted, driven like cattle to the borders and just brutally slaughtered as they're being. Can you rejoice in any way in the light of that happening and I believe what Peter would say is yes absolutely absolutely you can rejoice in that and so we have to figure it out as Americans we are so unaccustomed to that type of thing we might have some people that have left this country over the last two and a half centuries to be ministers and and, uh, you know activists out in the world missionaries sacrificing their lives Yet, that touches so few of us. Some of us know missionaries. There have been missionaries from this church in our our history. We have a missionary over there in that chair. So see, some people can relate. And yet, for the most part, I don't think most of us can relate at all. There's a truth here that we just cannot comprehend. So we need to take some time on this. Let's go to Acts 4.18 because we need to understand why it is that Peter can speak with such confidence concerning what he's teaching. If we go to Acts 4, starting at verse 18, this is the very, very early days of the church. So the apostles are called before the council, so they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So they were very bold. They were called before the council. They were threatened to not speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And yet, what did they say? They just said, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So let's skip ahead. They're still there before them. Now they've left. I'm sorry. They've left and now they're meeting with their brethren. And they say this to God. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So they've been told, don't speak or preach in the name of Jesus. And yet here they are in their, in their uh, care group at someone's home later that day, praying to the Lord for boldness. So then what happens? Well, let's skip ahead again. Let's go up to 518, 5.17. The high priest rose up and all those who were with him in the seated sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison because they've heard their back again. They're preaching in Jesus' name again. Those idiots, didn't we tell them not to do this? But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And then they entered the temple, and now here they are. And meanwhile, the council sends to the prison to have them brought back before them, and they say, well, the prison is locked up, the guards are there, but there are no prisoners, there are no apostles there to be brought to you. Then word comes from the temple. They're at the temple preaching. And so here they are back at the temple preaching. They are again grabbed, they're brought back before the Sanhedrin, The captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood down on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. And now you have Gamaliel stand up, who later we learn... Is who Paul learned his theology from, Gamaliel stands up and says put them out let's meet concerning this and he defuses the situation and he tells them stories about former people who have raised up who have raised a ruckus but then they all go by the wayside they all dissipate but he says but if it is of God you cannot overthrow it lest you even be found to be fighting against God they agreed with him Now this to me is amazing, that this council can be wooed by this one man. It shows how powerful he was and how persuasive he was. They agreed with him when they called for the apostles and beaten them. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name and daily in the temple and in every house They did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They are still not obeying the direction. They have now been beaten. And what did they do when they were beaten? They rejoiced. So now, see, Peter knows what he's talking about in 1 Peter 4, where he's writing to these pilgrims of the dispersion. He's been through it now. He's been through it for over 30 years. He's been living this life of audacious faith. And he's encouraging them to do the same. So now this is something we need, I think, to study and understand. Why did the apostles rejoice when they were beaten? What is it in the text that tells us the reason that they rejoiced that they were beaten? Because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. So see, they rejoiced, not in the beating. No one is going to rejoice in a beating. That person is called a masochist. And that's not what God wants you all to be. That's not who he is. God's not a sadist. He didn't punish his son to extract some pleasure from that punishment. What happened, though, this suffering, this persecution, this beating, had a purpose behind it that glorifies God. So then, what does it mean to be worthy to suffer shame? Worthy suffering. I want to talk a little bit about Jesus. You know, we we talk a lot about Jesus in Christianity. He is kind of the reason we get together. So see, Jesus never sinned. Jesus died a sinless man. And he was the only sinless person who ever died. Because, see, in a sense, his death was the only true unrighteous death. Because with Adam and Eve's sin, a sentence of death was pronounced upon them. Both temporal, physical death on this earth and eternal, spiritual death for all time. That was pronounced upon them. And that is what children in this world are born into. They're born unto a double condemnation of death. Death in the flesh and death in the spirit. So see, only Jesus, only Jesus died unrighteously ultimately. Now I realize that there is an earthly righteousness that we speak of and that the Bible is filled with from Genesis 4 to Revelation 19. But yet what I'm speaking of now is that that original sin, that reason why it's justified that all people die both here and in eternity. even Even the conception that just occurred and minutes later or hours later or days later dies in the womb, that new life is under condemnation of death. Both temporal, earthly, physical and spiritual, permanent So, we have to understand then what this worthy suffering is all about in the context of Christ and what he did. So see, all but Jesus bears some responsibility for the fact that there is sin in this world. But when we embrace the forgiveness of Christ, when we are saved, then we are oriented now towards heaven, towards God. And we have been cleansed. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell in us now. The saved are temples of the Holy Spirit. And so when we turn from our former uh, former sinful ways and embrace God and live for God, then we identify with Christ. We become Christians. Yet, we know based on our own experience, based on the experience of others, that not everyone can be identified from their external circumstances, from the way that they live, by what they say, by what they choose to say, that they're Christians. Right? Because people don't always walk the talk or talk the walk. I don't know why, it's just we live in a very inconsistent era when even though we are saved, viscerally, modified by the Holy Spirit, we yet fall away from that new love just as the churches in Revelation 3 are criticized of. We all do it. We've all been there. We all experience that. So why were they rejoicing then? We get, get back to that question. They were rejoicing because it was so clear to everybody. The council accused them of filling Jerusalem with this message. They've been successful they identify fully with being Christ-like. And their reward on this earth is to be beaten, is to be criticized, is to be mocked, is to be ridiculed, is, in some circumstances, to be killed. And yet, they rejoiced, thoroughgoing rejoicing, in that, like, I'm successfully living the Christian life. I know now, because those people want to kill me. They're happy about that. It's kind of odd, but it's true. And so see, if you can't be envious of them in that situation, if you can't really relate to them in that situation, you're not where they are. You're not living in a Christian mindset to the same degree that those apostles were. And that's what Peter is now speaking to these pilgrims of the dispersion about. Because in the beginning, he tells them in the letter. You have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be turned to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in our text, he says that you will undergo a fiery trial. So it started, and it's continuing. It is not over yet. So let's read the next two verses, 13 and 14. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So I want to focus on the last part of that. So that uh, when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. There are two outcomes in these two verses that I want to point out uh, pretty simply. First, in verse 13, one of the outcomes of this is that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy, with exceeding joy, double joy, when his glory is revealed. And so where will Christ's glory be revealed? Ultimately, to all of us, to all humans that ever walked the earth, it will be revealed in heaven, in judgment. And so all of the mockery, all of the insults, all of the ridicule, all of the punishment and torture and the mistreatment that Christians have undergone for Christ will be on display. Every one of them will result in glory to God, and that glory abounds to us to the degree that we were faithful, that we were there and we were enduring this with exceeding joy in heaven. We will experience that. Now here, the next one says this though, verse 14. Blessed are you, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So see, we're talking about two different time frames. I think here. The one in, the, in verse 13 is pointing to the future where when Christ's glory is truly revealed, what you've endured will result in you having exceeding joy. Why? Because you will be there and you will be so thankful that you withstood the temptation to respond poorly to the rebuke, the ridicule, the persecution. Instead, you endured as Christians are to endure, as God intends for us to endure and to respond. So let me read verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. So see now he's saying there are many reasons that people might legitimately persecute you on this earth even though it's not because you're a Christian. And it's because you're evil. You're acting in an evil way. We all know that even though we're Christians that can happen. We can do bad things, say bad stuff, and we can get called on the carpet for it. I remember a friend forever ago had told me that he was at a Bible study and members of their church were being uh, essentially tasked with going out to speak to business owners in the community to try to reach out to them with the gospel. And one man was assigned a new dry cleaner that had just opened a few months earlier. And he just sank his head. He said, I'm sorry, I can't go there. He said... They don't do a good job of dry cleaning clothes, and I told them. I mean, he had gone there, and he just ripped them up one side and down the other, and he did not want to go back. But then the leader said, oh, no, you're the guy that has to go back because they need to know that you're a Christian. They need to know that you ought not to have done that that way. Okay. So, see, our sins come back to haunt us sometimes like that. We never get away from them. We all think that they're only going to come to full light in heaven, and that's true. But they can be revealed on this earth, much to our dismay, much to our embarrassment. Now, when I read this verse, though, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody on other people's matters, I'm also thinking of those that have responded poorly to the criticism that we receive as Christians. Um, Like I said, we Americans just really don't know how, as a Christian, to accept ridicule and reproach and persecution. Uh, We fight, and we get angry, and we respond. Now, I'm not saying that it's not appropriate times to fight. It is, by all means. But remember always, though, that you are reflecting your Father in heaven. Is this the way he wants you responding to this particular thing you have to ask yourself that am I responding properly? Because I'm really thankful that I know some of you pack weapons in this in this uh, congregation I'm really thankful that if some uh, person with a handgun ran in that door and started shouting and trying to shoot me that I might have one two guys Stand up and had something to do about that. I'm thankful for that. I think that is taking wise precautions What I am talking more about, though, is that from our heart we have to understand that God has designed us to suffer as his body on this earth. And so there will be instances in which we have no choice but to suffer. And so how will you fare up in those circumstances? How will you respond to the ridicule, the reproach? In 1798, John Adams, our second president, said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. I know most of us have heard that statement. It's not like it's from the Bible. It's not like it uh, was spoken by Moses on Mount Sinai. But I think John Adams was a very wise man. He was probably one of the wisest of our founding fathers. And he had a foresight that I think is Uh, obviously shown here. The Bill of Rights is about 225 years old, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. It is those 10 Bill of Rights that were heavily debated during the ratification of the Constitution because some wanted them and others said no we don't need them. All these states have all these rights. We do not want the federal government to think that they're the ones that are dispensing these rights or recognizing even these rights. But those voices were overridden. The Bill of Rights was passed, and we continue to amend the Constitution in those similar ways. And yet, uh, those Bill of Rights are eroding. We all know this. We know that we now here don't typically experience a freedom of religion. What is it that is being lived out now in our society? A freedom from Religion. We know this. Uh, high school graduates are refused to say the name of Christ in a, in a commencement speech. Where is my freedom of religion? It's been taken away because the freedoms of all those people not to hear about your religion, the freedom from your religion is how that is being interpreted now. We all know that is wrong. But we all know that's what's happening. And so we cannot, I think, in good conscience, without being somewhat of a Pollyanna about this, think that the Constitution will continue to protect our liberties as we move through time. It just is not going to happen. They will continue to erode. We will continue to have an executive, a legislature, and a judicial branch that steal them, that take them, that trample them, So let's not solely rely upon that. Yes, let's fight for our constitutional rights, but we have to realize in our hearts that those one day, even today, are not enough and they will be overridden. Now, Paul was beaten and tortured and left in the deep, all these many things, but yet he appealed to Caesar, did he not, when he was standing there before Agrippa? So see, we have the right to appeal to our laws. They are there for our benefit just as well as for everybody else. It's just that we are dealing in many ways though nowadays with people who are hostile to our God. And they will be commanding us not to speak in the name of Jesus. And I just hope that we go on our merry way speaking in the name of Jesus just like we know we ought to be. Amen. Amen. So now we live in a time of immature Christianity and yet uh, many in the churches probably aren't even Christians. And so will such people remain faithful through the reproach and the abuse and the persecution? No. We know that. As a matter of fact in many ways that's why God will bring it about. It's going to finally weed those people out of God's church. Get rid of those people who pretend to be Christian only when it's socially acceptable to be so. And yet now when it's no longer socially acceptable to be Christians, they're gonna run like rats from the sinking ship. And I say, amen, God bless them, get out of here. You know I'm here to endure reproach for Christ's sake. I don't know what you were doing here, but I'm glad you're gone. So now, uh, God purifies his church through this way, and that's how he purifies us. So see, we are the church in a microcosm, right? And so when that persecution comes, it also drives us. It puts the pressure on us. We're in the crucible. We're under the heat. The impurities are flowing out of us. And yet we're being made more pure to reflect God, to reflect him as we ought to be. In verse 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God, in this matter. So, see, modern Western society spits upon Christianity now. It is now popular and politically correct to abuse Christians. And, it, and it's been growing in popularity for the last 10 or 20 years, but it's really turning a corner right now, I think you would uh, agree. So, uh, let me go back to 1989. So, this is what, 26 years ago. A young American. 17 years old, wins the French Open. And in his uh, acceptance right there on the tennis court, he says, I thank the Lord Jesus Christ because without him, I am nothing. This is Michael Chang. He was 17 years old and he gave all the glory to Christ. And the audience booed him. This is France, after all. They've had had enough of religion since the 1780s. So they boo him. And uh, yet... He later said, and what I didn't realize at the time, I hadn't connected these two events, he said that what many don't remember is that the Tiananmen Square crackdown was occurring right during the French Open in 1989. And he went on to say the crackdown that happened was on the middle, Sunday at the French Open. So if I was not practicing or playing a match, I was glued to the television watching the events unfold. I often tell people I think it was God's purpose for me to be able to win the French Open the way it was, because I was able to put a smile on Chinese people's faces around the world at a time when there wasn't much to smile about. So now here he's speaking more broadly about just you know Chinese seeking freedom freedom of expression not specifically the Chinese but yet here is a Chinese uh, Christian second-generation praising God for what has happened so now it is definitely politically correct to mock Christianity and yet for this very reason I encourage you to set yourself up in your personal life as a target for the mockers and then Respond as God would have you respond when the mocking comes. It is a way that we will demonstrate to the world that we are Christians. And that results in praise to God, exceeding joy for you when you stand before God in heaven. And it results here and now with the Holy Spirit being poured out upon you. What's not to like about that? What is a little bit of criticism on Facebook? concerning the posting of your faith in tasteful ways. I realize we can all get a bit, you know, rough when it comes to this, but I just encourage you, encourage you to be like Christ, to be like these apostles, to respond to the criticism that you get very politely, very patiently, very biblically. I think it's what God would have you to do. I want to share a couple of examples of martyrdoms um, one, I've read it several times now, I've been reading a book and I think I even mentioned it here once, but uh, this 100 Christian events, most notable 100 Christian events. So I've read through the book twice, I'll probably just keep reading through it. It's just one of those things that it's good to know and good to be reminded of it. And it especially kind of chronicles the Roman Catholic dominance through the Middle Ages, which, is, which I need to know more of. But Polycarp was an elder of Smyrna and he was 86 years old when this uh, incredible persecution came upon this area and he was so well loved by the people of his church and they wanted him to flee they they there would have been ample opportunity but he said no 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 i'm not going to flee so he is eventually arrested and he is now in the arena and the proconsul the government official who's here to essentially deal with these rebellious atheists as they were thought to be uh, he wants to spare this man too I mean it's a nice old man he's 86 years old after all so he urges him to just take a small pinch of incense and offer it in homage to Caesar but of course he refuses that would be to worship Caesar and so then he urged him please cry out away with the atheists because the Christians were thought to be atheists because they would not worship Caesar and so what he did is he turned to the jeering crowd in the arena that just wanted to see him die and he said away with the atheists (laughs) and the proconsul of course didn't uh, take that as official nor did Polycarp intend it to be official and so he was speaking the truth though so he urged him then to take the oath and the oath was to curse Christ to which Polycarp replied this 86 years I have served him and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Tied to the stake, Polycarp prayed to be received by the Lord as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. So he was killed right there in the arena at 86. I want to read another example, and this was given by uh, Clowney in his commentary. Back in Fidel Castro's Cuba, he had taken over in the mid to late 50s and uh, Christians were uh, very unwelcome in his Cuba. So there was a young man by the name of Armando Valadares, and in 1962 he's in his office. He has an office and a desk. He's 23 years old, and uh, he is given a little plaque. It says, I support Castro, and he refused to put it on his desk to display it because he didn't support Castro, and so he was arrested for being uh, against the president and he was imprisoned for uh, over 20 years, and he was, uh, for whatever reason, he became very notable, and so he was not executed for this, but his cell in the prison was often near where he was over the courtyard where they were executing prisoners, and he said that they would take people out there fairly regularly, and at first, many of these men would shout out, long live Christ the King, down with communism, and so, the jailers were so disturbed by this practice because it was repeating itself over and over that they began gagging the prisoners when they pulled them from their cells such that they couldn't yell this out. But so he was finally freed in 1982 and then wrote a book years later called Against All Hope in which he documents the horrible abuses that these prisoners endured down in Cuba and uh, now we uh, people that support men like him and these Cuban refugees they, they uh, severely criticize President Obama for now whitewashing all of that in restoring relationships with Cuba. But uh, let me go on to verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God and if it begins with us first what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God. Now we talk about what we endure as being persecution and reproaches and ridicule and all of this, as being a form of purification. It's purifying us. It's purifying God's people. It's giving them the opportunity to glorify Him on this earth in the flesh and draw glory to Him such that in the hereafter, we will experience this uh, overwhelming joy. But yet, there's also a sense in which uh, God brings judgment upon His people on this earth first because we live in the midst of communities that are evil and God rebukes that community and he starts by rebuking his church which typically is then uh, brought about by the community that God will later judge bringing pressure to bear upon these Christians his people so see the argument that Peter then says here for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God and if it begins with us first What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. In other words, if even Christians are going to suffer such abuse by God's hand, he uses human tools, but yet he he brings this pressure to bear upon his people to drive the sin out that is within them. So if God treats his children like this, can you imagine how he will treat others. So see people try to diminish the reality of hell. They try to downplay the fact that there is a hell that God would be unkind to have a hell. But yet the same people will often point to the suffering on earth as being an indication that there is no God at all. So see you can't have it both ways. Either God is tolerating this evil on the earth and will one day judge it severely or he is, as kind of the deists say, he is just apathetic about it. He has created man to just go off and play and explore the world as as he wants it and to obviously suffer from the poor laws that he puts in place in place of God's laws. But so, the time for judgment has come, I believe, and it's uh, been forever since the church in this uh, uh, nation has suffered this because we've had, really, such a good Christian body for so many years, for centuries. Yet it has declined, 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 to the point where now it is barely visible. And even we, who are faithful, have so little impact upon the world that we live in, that God brings pressure to bear now, and He will have this judgment to fall upon us. The last verse, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. This is the only reference to God as our creator in the New Testament. And I think it's done for this reason. because, And that's partly why I chose the uh, title for this sermon that I did, uh, Suffering by Design. Our creator made all things. Our creator made all things. Everything that we see, and I so loved Keith's prayer earlier when we are to praise God for everything, not just the beautiful flowers, not just the birds and the bees, but for even the fact that we suffer abuse, even the evil that exists on this earth. God uses it to purify His church, and He will demonstrate His justice in the hereafter when He destroys all of those people. And we know that that destruction is not even uh, complete. It does not mean annihilation. It means those people will be destroyed forever. They're in the process of being destroyed forever, while we, meanwhile, bask in glory. So see, our creator God has designed suffering for our good and for his glory, just as Keith said in that prayer. And we experience it, only well if we respond properly. So that's why I think I I think this message is important. I think we need to begin to think in terms of the persecuted church. How would these persecuted Christians around the world respond? How do they respond? That's partly why I brought this up I've been reading about the Christian persecution that has gone on over in China and is continuing to go on. We're going over there to visit here in a couple of weeks, and I'm really wanting to kind of identify with what that culture has gone through and continues to go through. Uh, And it's important that we identify with our Christian brethren, that we don't, don't just abandon them. So suffering for Christ is a pledge to us, of the reality that we truly belong to Christ so if you are not disciplined as God says then you are not a legitimate son we want the discipline God brings upon his church when it comes we want to be first me me I was talking with Gary earlier and we know that the LGBT community doesn't like us well there's another letter on the end now LGBT what's the other one Q, Q. yeah they all keep keep adding letters I guess And when it it goes to pedophilia, we'll have to add another one. Bestiality, we have to add another one. It's just going to be this huge phrase that we'll never remember. But so we actively oppose the LGBTQ agenda. And so we feel that it might not be out of the realm of possibility that Phil is carted away one day. We'll see. We pray that doesn't happen. But yet we have to prepare for it. We have to recognize that by opposing their agenda, We oppose evil, and just like the council here, they don't take it lightly. They're moving into positions of power all across this nation. They are welcomed there. So many of the big businesses have welcomed the LGBTQ agenda, and so we must continue to fight against it. And so if we truly partake of Christ's suffering, it's because Christ is in us, and it's not invisible. Christ is shining forth through us in a way that makes us obnoxious to the LGBTQ community. So see, if Christ is in us and he's too visible to others, that makes them hate us so much more. But Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So see, our modeling of Christian behavior results in, transformation of society. When I read this about the Boxer Rebellion, how tens of thousands of Christians, uh, missionaries and Chinese converts, were killed. Within two years, they had all been replaced by converts. It's just amazing. I mean, people see these Christians die in these brutal ways, and now they say, sign me up. it, it, it even told the story of a soldier who could not stand what he was seeing. I don't even think he was a believer, but he just thought that this was wrong. So he tried to stand up against what was happening, these brutal killings of these people, and then they killed him. When you enter into that type of bloodlust environment, you're not going to stop them that easily. When you read about what happened in France in the French Revolution, it's just horrendous The, the degree to which violence prevailed in Paris for weeks and months, but I digress. Father, we thank you for your love and it is astounding to us that the reproach and the persecution and the criticism and the martyrdom can be of such great significance in your economy. And that's why, Lord, we need to study your word. We need to understand uh, the value that you place in our suffering the degree to which you are glorified and that you are pleased by how we stand up for you on this earth we thank you father that christ led the way that the apostles led the way and that we pray for strength to stand in a time of testing we want to be faithful uh, servants and we pray lord that you would give us courage strength resolve and above all an endurance to endure uh, with christian love uh, the persecution that will likely come. We thank you, Father, for your kindness to us. In Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.